would help us. God, it is not your desire to make converts out of us just for us to make an ascent of our minds, but it's instead your desire is to transform our entire lives. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the stuff that we are proud of, the stuff that we are ashamed of, all these things are laid before you. And as disciples, we come to you and we ask, Spirit of God, transform us. Change us, grow us, help us to become what you desire of us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace, without which none of us could survive. You are a good God, you are a gracious God. And I pray, Lord, that this morning, that as we kind of go deeper into this topic of transformation, what it looks like, I pray, Holy Spirit, that nobody would feel condemned, nobody would feel judged, but instead we would feel empowered and we'd feel excited about what this journey of faith could look like. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. And uh, if you are visiting with us, we want to say welcome. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. We're continuing on a series that we started off a couple of weeks ago. I want to say a huge thank you to Murray. Uh, Murray was here last week and taught for me. I was away at a youth conference, so it was me and 100 youth and only one thing of deodorant for the entire crowd. And I don't know why that worked out that way. So I was away in Perry Sound teaching at a, at a, at a youth conference for the weekend. And uh, I want to say a huge thank you to Murray for uh, uh, teaching and, and also the feedback I received that many of you really uh, uh, were, uh, were profoundly affected by the Lord's Prayer and, and, and all of that. We started this series a couple of weeks ago, so I'm going to do a bit of a longer recap to kind of bring us back up to speed. The idea behind this series was simply this idea of what does it look like to have a transformed life? We looked at this, uh, ta- this uh, article by Nancy Lee uh, DeMoss about transformation, how does it happen? And in the article, she says this, if only spiritual transformation were that easy, just read a book, see a counselor, attend a conference, make a fresh commitment, resolve to be different, shed a few tears at an altar, memorize a few verses, and presto, out comes a mature, godly Christian. So what she's saying in her article is that we talk about transformation a lot, but no one really kind of knows what it actually is and what it actually looks like. And she says, like, a lot of things that we do, like whether it's a conference or memorize this or read this book, it's all of a sudden, is this what's going to make us into a mature Christian? And the uh, unfortunate answer is no. She goes on to say this in the article. She says, to the contrary, the experience of many believers looks like this. Commit, fail, confess. Recommit, fail again, confess again. Re-recommit, fail again, give up. Right? If we are honest about our faith, if we're honest about our, our spiritual journey, this is kind of more what we think of today. Like when we talk about uh, transformation, when we talk about this idea of spiritual development, we really kind of come to this point of saying, the easy stuff I can do, but the other stuff, it just, it's, it's beyond me, and I don't know what it looks like. And because of that, what we've done is that we've, let this, we've, we've created this kind of ceiling about what transformation, what, what uh, a mature Christ follower looks like. We looked at this word, um, and I told everyone to say this word carefully, ascesis. Ascesis is a Greek word talking about training. And we looked at Epictetus, and we looked at Paul, and they both use this word. And in the first century uh, Roman Empire, ascesis was this idea of training, right? It's this idea of how we actually go about uh, tra- transforming ourselves. And what was interesting is the early church didn't believe in instant. It wasn't instant. It wasn't, uh, yes, I believe in Jesus, and poof right? Nothing was instant about them. They actually had this idea of a a, a process that takes forever. And the word ascesis actually is all about this transformation. And what's interesting is that the word is used in these three types of categories, athlete, hermit, or monk. 
right? These are asketes. These are individuals who are preparing themselves, training themselves to become different. Now, why this is so important is because this is the exact opposite almost of Western Christianity. Western Christianity, what we've said is that if you make a decision, uh, uh, say the sinner's prayer, uh, do this, come to an altar, whatever it would be, whatever uh, confirmation, whatever uh, level we say, we say, if you can just get to that point, then we are, we are satisfied with that. But the problem is, is that does not create a mature Christian. It does not help us to wrestle and deal with um, habits in our own lives, things we need to kind of transform, but also shame and guilt that may be also present in our lives from things in our past. And so this idea of eschesis is this, is this process, it's this development, and it's a lifelong one. We looked at a couple of quotes, uh, one by the name of a guy by the name of Gordon MacDonald. And Gordon MacDonald's background is actually the military. And so Gordon MacDonald talks about what a, a soldier looks like when they first come into the military. This whole idea of training camp and what it looks like from there and how they get developed. Like what Gordon MacDonald says is that you, you can't expect someone to learn the behaviors of what it means to be a soldier. And regardless of how we think of soldiers and, and armies and things like that, the point is that you have to kind of develop. You have to kind of grow in that. So Gordon MacDonald says this, if the church exists to see people transformed, shouldn't we be clear about what a transformed Christian looks like? This is the terrifying statement for most Western Christians. As we talk about Christianity, we talk about Jesus, we talk about Christ-likeness, but nobody ever identifies what does that person actually look like. And we like to kind of use abstractions, we kind of like to use um, vague terms because we are really uncomfortable. If we really read the uh, words of Jesus in the Gospels, you kind of start, this picture starts emerging that Jesus had a different requirement for those who would call themselves his followers. Uh, we looked at Henri Nouam, and uh, he, this is what he says. Almost anything that regularly asks us to slow down and order our time, desires, and thoughts to counteract selfishness, impulsiveness, or hurried fogginess of mind can be a spiritual discipline. This entire series is going to be about spiritual disciplines, but I'm actually going to approach it a little differently than I have a couple of years ago when I taught on it. A couple of years ago when I taught on it, we used a statement, you know, train, don't try, right? Train uh, to be a Christ follower, don't try, right? And we kind of walked through that a little bit. Well, this time I'm actually going to change a little bit of my focus because I've realized something. Telling you what to do is just adding another thing to your to-do list. And for most of you, your lists are already way too long. Whether you're a student working full-time, whether you are whatever context of life you find yourself in, adding something else to your to-do list is like, okay, I'll add that to my to-do list, but I'll put that at the bottom. If I get through all these other things, and if I have spare time, then I'll get to this part. And as I haven't met a human being yet who's got spare time on their hands. Uh, if such a person exists, please come talk, uh, send them my way. I could really use some help. Uh, but most people don't have time right? Everyone uses the phrase, how are you doing? Oh, busy. I'm so busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. Absolutely, you're busy. We're all busy. We're all kind of overtop busy. And so when it talks about spiritual disciplines and things you need to do in your life to draw closer to God, if I say to you, please do this thing, you may do it for a day or two. You may do it for a week or two, but you will not inhabit it. You will not integrate it into your life because it's just another thing to do. And so this time as I approach this, uh, this series on spiritual disciplines and what it looks like, I'm actually going to kind of talk about it a little bit differently because I've realized that part of the problem with transformation is you're already asking overcommitted people to do more things to become Christ followers. And 
that becomes problematic because not a lot of people have time. So when we talk about this series, I would say to you, and I would propose to you, that there are three types of Christians that are inhabiting our churches today, or, or, or would self-identify as Christians, however you want to approach that. I would say that the three types of Christians can be broken down into these categories. I have enough of God. There is no more of God to be had. I want more of God. Right? I think these are the types of Christians that we have in our church today. The first one would be what I would call cultural. When, I, when you say to someone, I have enough of God, what they're really saying is, I have enough of God to make me feel good about myself, or bad, depending on which way I want to go, but I don't have enough of God that, that you know, there's no more that I really want to make me uncomfortable. I, I don't really want more of God to make me uncomfortable. I am absolutely okay with just saying, you know what, I'll show up to church Christmas or Easter or once a month, twice a month, whatever is, whatever is convenient, as long as nothing else is going on. I'm, I'm okay with that, right? So that would say to you, that, was a, that would be a cultural Christian. The second category would be a person I would call a secular Christian. There is no more of God to be had. Sometimes when you have conversations with people about God and faith, sometimes you have this conversation of like, I, I seem to be speaking an alien language because I can tell by the glazed look in your eye that this idea of deeper things of the Lord and, and, and the miraculous and all the supernatural, it's a very, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with that. Right? And, and I said to you the very, uh, a couple of weeks ago that one of the reasons why I want to kind of approach the series is I, I just want to say to you as Christ followers, we haven't gotten to the good stuff yet. We're still working on the basics. And by the good stuff, I mean life in the Spirit. And we're going to kind of get to that, right? What the Holy Spirit actually wants to do in our lives. And that could be the miraculous or the mundane, but we haven't got to the good stuff yet because we're still stuck in the, well... Do I really want to? Is there enough time? You know? And so I would say these are what I would call secular Christians who would self-identify as a Christ follower, but really would say, there isn't any more of a God to be had. You know, it's just, you know, be a good person, be a nice person, and that's really all there is to it. And the final category, I think, is that I want more of God, and I would say this would be a disciple. Now, the word disciple is kind of interesting because whenever we talk about spiritual disciplines, the word disciple is integrated into it. One time when Jesus was teaching, he kind of got in trouble. And he got in trouble because he used a word that offended his audience. And I, I, you know, I, I really wonder if Jesus could pack in an auditorium today like some you know, Christian celebrities or Christian speakers. Because I'm pretty sure he would offend most people in the audience because he would just say the truth. So one time Jesus is teaching, he says this. Jesus said to the people who believed in him. Now, just that statement there is important. Jesus said to a group of people who were already fans of him this. You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, listen to the group here. Look how they respond in verse 33. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? So what Jesus is saying is, if you're truly my disciples, you will experience a freedom that you will not have in your entire life. And they're saying, that, well, we're free. And the fact is, they're lying. They are not free because they're living in an occupied country by the Romans. And they were slaves one time in Egypt. So they're kind of glossing over that a little bit. And their pride is rising up in them. It's like, we're, we, we are free. Now look what Jesus says in verse 34 and 36. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son, a, but a son is a part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free... You are truly free. So now look what he does there. He says to them, if you're truly my disciple, 
you will experience a freedom by somebody who's not one of my disciples. And the freedom isn't about uh, actually being in shackles or, or the literal idea we have in our minds of slavery. That exists. But what they're saying is, we're free. And Jesus is saying, you're actually not free because you are still enslaved by these desires in you that you've never dealt with. So one of the things I, can say, I think we can say about a disciple of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus is one who unencumbers themselves from the world. Now, just so you know, that word unencumbers doesn't exist. I made it up, okay? Because it didn't, uh, it just didn't exist, right? But I like it. Right now, the word unencumbered, unencumbered, now that's an actual word, is this, to not, uh, not impeded, slow down, free to move, advance or go forward, having few or, or no burdens or obligations. The image I want you to have in your mind here is a disciple is somebody who comes to Jesus with their life. And Jesus says, do you not realize that these things in your life are actually weighing you down? And that when you find out what's truly important in this world, you begin to kind of get rid of things so that you're no longer slave to desires, habits. You're no longer slave to the culture. You're no longer slave to people in your life. You are now unencumbered. You are unencumbering yourself. It's the process of releasing things and saying, you know what, what is really important and what isn't important? And you know what's interesting is... We actually have this in our lives, but we only have this in the midst of tragedy. So when we see on the news of a violent act that has taken place or a natural disaster that has taken place or an economic downturn where many people have lost their jobs, in that moment, we realize the fragility, we realize how frail life really is. And all of a sudden we realize, oh, what's really important in my life? And it's only in tragedy, it's only in the upside-downness of this world that we remember, hmm, you know, I thought this was important. I thought this new piece of technology or this new relationship or this new job or all these things that I thought were important, actually, they're not that important. You know, living, being alive actually is kind of important, you know, or or having my health or, you know, whatever it would be. And so a disciple is someone who, who Jesus comes along and says, hey, let me help you to understand what you are truly, what your freedom you think you're free about. Let me help you kind of unpack that and show you what true freedom looks like. I think that when we talk about this idea of disciple, and I was kind of going to go down this path a little bit. Did you know that in the New Testament, and by the New Testament I mean the Gospels, Jesus uses the term, the term disciple is used over 300 times. Right? 300 times this idea of disciples talked about. Did you know that how many times the word convert is used? It's only used one time. And the one time that Jesus uses it, he says to the, to the, to the religious leaders, you know, you, you, you create one convert and you make them more a son of hell than you are. So it's not, a, it's, it's not really a, a, a great way of using it. So in other words, what we have to say is we've used this idea of convert or conversion to talk about Christianity, which is a really, really bad usage of the language. Instead, Jesus says, disciple. I'm not actually calling you to be a convert. I'm not actually making, asking you to make a decision. I'm asking you to actually transform your life. And so there's three layers of what I would say uh, Jesus teaches a, a disciple. A disciple is a worshiper. Worship of God was seen as a singular focus of the heart. That means that anything that dilutes that focus is seen as hindrance to our relationship. You know, it's interesting. In John chapter 4, Jesus has this incredible conversation with the Samaritan woman. 
And instead of saying, hey, listen, I want you to follow me, or I want you to recognize me as the Messiah, or I want you to check this box off, he instead says, you want, you want what I really want from you? I want you to be a worshiper. And he says this to her, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So whatever a disciple is, this concept of worship, and it's not just simply singing, right? One of the things that we're trying to do here at UCC is we're trying to help us to redefine worship. So for those of you who are there Friday night for our worship service, right, there is painting, there is drawing, there's journaling, there's quiet reflection time, there is more expressive ways of worship. In other words, worship isn't just simply singing these words, but it's an integration of our entire lives. And a disciple is a worshiper of God that they have a singular focus, desired love of their Savior. The second thing I think uh, we have a disciple is disciple means servant. Servanthood is a foundation of a disciple. There is no greater test of motives or agendas than in our willingness to lay down our egos for God and one another. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many servanthood is part and parcel to whatever a disciple looks like. Not to be served, but to serve. As a matter of fact, in the early church and historically, one of the marks of a Christ follower was in their willingness to serve, and not just serve those they love. You know, one of of my favorite statements Jesus ever makes, he says, what good is it if you love those who love you? Don't the pagans do that? I love that statement because that statement just flies in the face of us when we say, well, you know, I, I, I had my friends over or I, you know, I did this for my family member. I was like, no, 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 no. You're doing that for stuff for people who will maybe pay you back or have a relationship with you. Can you do it to somebody who's, who believes the exact opposite of you? Can you do it to somebody who spits in your face, who hates you? Right? That's what a servant was for Jesus. And so whatever we understand about disciple, it means servant. And the final layer, I think, is witness. We are called to use our lives as a signpost to others about who and what Jesus is. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, again, this is one of Jesus' final teachings to his disciples. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. So this is what a disciple looks like. This is what a disciple, as Jesus envisioned it, looks like. So how do we start the the first step in the journey of transformation? Well, in previous years, I've I've, I've approached this in a different way. But I've realized something, and I kind of let the cat out of the bag a few weeks back in my other teaching series, is that the first step that we need to kind of understand is something different. It's something I've never really truly understood until it started kind of really bearing down on Jesus' life and his teachings. And I realized something here. The first step on the journey of a disciple is the posture of humility. And this is very transformative for myself because I've never taught this before. But as I've been looking at what transformation looks like, as I've been looking at the life of Jesus, and I've been looking at others who have taught on it, not just in today's time, but in the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries, this word keeps popping up. This, this concept, this posture. Now, the word posture is interesting, right? Posture simply means your entire being, how you are standing, how you are facing, Right? So whatever it is to be a disciple, however we understand discipleship and whatever we understand transformation, 
the first step in this journey must be humility. Because I said the statement a couple of weeks back, but I was to remind you of it. You cannot be taught what you think you already know. And this is the profound shame of the church today, is that we believe that we have, we have quantified Christianity. We know what a Christian is, right? They're a good person, they're this, they're that. And like, hmm. Maybe sometimes Christians aren't the best people. Maybe they're more the people who understand how much they need a Savior. Maybe Christians aren't the ones that say, hey, we look nice and we, we act nice and all that. Maybe they're the ones that actually kind of getting in people's faces about those who are being victims, those who are being hurt by culture, those who are being uh, marginalized by, by society. Maybe that's what Christians look like. Maybe, maybe what we have to understand about Christianity is that we've kind of gotten it backwards a little bit, and I don't want to go down this rabbit, rabbit hole, but in the 1950s, this whole idea of the Industrial Revolution and, and, and work ethic, and like people believe the statement that, you know, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, right? That was actually Benjamin Franklin said that, not, 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 in, not in Scripture. But yet people think, oh, that must be in the Bible. It's like, maybe we've kind of gotten this wrong. There's kind of an old um, proverb, and the proverb says this, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Now, I've always heard that statement, and I've always kind of rolled my eyes a little bit because I realized something. It felt to me like, you know, it's kind of like a Star Trek, like a beaming of like this person all of a sudden appears. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm the student. This is, my, this, is, this is my teacher. And I just realized I've gotten that statement all wrong. Because what the statement is actually saying is when you have the posture of a, stu- of a student, anyone can teach you. And that's what they're trying to tell us about Transformation. And so what we have in the church today is we have a lot of people we think that think they know about Christianity or think they know about what it means to be a Christian and have stopped growing, asking questions, pushing further. And we said, ah, no, we know, we know. And that posture is a posture of pride and not humility. Rather than saying, hey, I, I just want to know more. See, God is infinite. We say that. But how does a finite being wrap their minds around an infinite being? Like how many of us have scratched the surface of who and what God is and what he wants to do in our lives? And I I say to you, as I've been a Christ follower for many years and have studied and studied and studied, I am still learning. I am still learning in in regards to what God wants and how he wants to, to move in our lives. And so however we understand this idea of humility, it is necessary for us to grow. Now here's something else that's interesting. The character trait of humility is the second most frequently taught trait in the New Testament, second only to love. Love is the thing that Jesus talks about a lot. But the second thing he talks about a lot, humility. When's the last time we heard a sermon on humility? When's the last time that we heard a church acting and behaving in a humble way? When's the last time Christ followers acted in a humble way? Rather than proud and arrogant and keepers of all the answers and we know how things are supposed to be and we know how things are supposed to go. This trait of humility was the second most taught in the New Testament. And yet, when we talk about Christianity, we talk about Western Christianity especially, I don't think people would describe us as humble. I, I'm not sure if that's what they would say to us. Now, we have to be careful here, because as we talk about humility, as we talk about what it means to be humble, there can be kind of a false posture that can happen. A guy by the name of Charles Ayers, and There's going to be lots of words coming on the screen, so be aware. Um, I think he has something very interesting to say about this. He says this. 
That's a lot of words. Okay. Humility is a key virtue in our Christian spiritual formation. The idea of being humble is often misunderstood today. It is seen as weakness when actually it is just the opposite. Christian humility is strength. The key to humility is knowing that our strength comes from Christ. I have to admit that at various points in my life, I've had some, I have some, I've had had some spiritual pride. And I've also had the opposite where I thought I'm no good and unworthy. Humility remedies both of these infirmities. Pride is erased because it is God who has gifted me and he receives all the glory. Unworthiness is obliterated by basking in God's love, receiving his strength and living boldly within the kingdom of God. See, I think this is kind of important. When we talk about humility, and it kind of comes back when we taught on this a little back on the, uh, on the seven deadly sins, this idea of what it means to be meek, right? Meekness. The posture of meekness, the posture of humility is actually a posture of strength. And the reason it's a posture of strength is only somebody who is strong at who they are can be humble. Right? Now, watch this, right? And I think Charles Harris said this very correctly. On the one hand, we have our culture that is wrapped up in pride. And pride simply means thinking highly of oneself, over-focused on me. I could just basically put a uh, word there, narcissism. Right? I love those uh, Nike commercials. It's your world. Right? It's, it's, this world's for you. Right? Be your best version of you. You know, like, this world's for you. Just go and you're special. You can do anything. I want to play in the NBA. Can I play in the NBA? I, I don't think so. I don't think there's any space for midget guards or like that or, uh, or short brown guys that just can't run that much. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that can happen. But I really want to play in the NBA. It's my world, isn't it? No, not really. Not as much as you think. Well, I want to be a rock star, but I can't play an instrument. I can smash a guitar. Would that, would that be good enough? Well, maybe for the first two minutes of the concert, but the rest of it, you got to do something else, right? The point is simply this. In our culture today, we are rarely wrapped up in ourselves. We have personal social media. Just so you know, when this whole idea of the internet, the interweb came up, right, nobody ever thought about having a personal website. We had websites. They were terrible. They didn't work very well. And Microsoft seemed to own everything, right? So I'm like, okay, that's what it was. But all of a sudden, this, this thing called Facebook popped up, and you could have a personally curated media page that's all about you, right? You pick the best profile picture. You have the best stories. You, you make friends with people. Why? Because you want to let people know more about you, right? Oh, you know, before you put that, uh, that picture of me on, on, on Facebook, make sure it looks good. Can I take a look at it? Is my fourth or fifth chin showing? Because I don't, I don't want that, right? So can we, can, we, um, can we modify that? And oh, what filter can I use on Instagram? Because that, that sepia one, it kind of washes me out a little bit, but that one bring, it makes my eyes pop and you can't really see my ball spot that much. So maybe I could use that one a little bit or, you know, I, I have like 42 followers on Twitter. I'm pretty proud of them. And uh, we're really, we're really a vi- you know, feisty. We are narcissists. We are, right? We are overly wrapped up in ourselves. And without realizing it, we've become proud. Or maybe we've realized it and we just don't care. But that posture isn't the posture of a disciple. But on the other side, too, is this idea of false pride. And that's the part of us that kind of walks around saying, we feel unworthy, unforgivable. When people say to me, God can't, couldn't love me or God can't forgive me, what you are really saying is that this thing that you've done or this thing that's been done to you or this thing that you've participated in or this thing that has happened in your life, that this thing is so big that the infinite creator of all the universe couldn't possibly forgive you. You are saying 
without realizing that you were saying is your sin is greater than God. You are pretty special and horrible at the same time. (laughs) That you could have a sin that God couldn't forgive. Wow! I've heard testimonies of of gangbangers who have killed people. I've heard testimonies of people who have have just been done things in their lives. and, And yet they find God's grace and mercy. But you, you have found the one thing that God cannot forgive. Wow! Good for you. You should tweet that. Like, that's amazing, right? I'm being, I, I, I'm, I'm being joking, of course. But simply put, it's just false pride can make us walk around like, oh, God can't love me. I'm unworthy. That's false pride, right? That's false pride. Because whatever, however you see, whatever two of these juxtapositions you are for, what you'll find here is humility is the middle ground here. We don't walk around saying God can't love me because he does. He tells us that. One person said it this way, you know, God loves you but refuses to let you stay the way you are. Transformation, okay. But we also can't walk around saying, well, I'm full of knowledge and wisdom and information. Right? These two parts here. Humility is the part that's in between. Humility looks to God and saying, God, you are great. And you are amazing and I receive your grace and your mercy. But I don't just stand around going, I'm so unworthy. Like, you know what? People have... Okay, tangent moment here. People say to me sometimes, Pastor, I love to help out in the church. I love to serve. I love to, but I'm, I'm just a horrible person. I said, I know you are. I've seen your Facebook page. I know. I get it, right? I know you are. I'm teasing, kind of. Um, <laughs> but the point isn't how horrible you are. The point is how great is your God. And sometimes our view of God is too small. It's too small. And this is what we need to really do is we need to bust down the doors, let God out of the box, whatever it would be. I love what C.S. Lewis says about God. He says, you know, we have, um, no, sorry, not C.S. Lewis. Um, I'll get it another time. But basically the, the writer says is we have, you know, defanged the line of Judah, right? We've shaved him. We've made him a little cat, a little kitten. That's, 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 that's okay in our lives, right? But the Bible says line of Judah right? This powerful, this, this, this presence, right? That's who Jesus is. And so whatever we understand about God, we have to always just confess and admit in a humble way of saying, you know what? Jesus is humility personified. You know, it's interesting when you study world religions and uh, in the new year, I'll be doing a course on world religions. I'm going to do some teaching on, on world religions because I think it's really important for us to understand how, what people believe and how they understand it. But also, it's really important for us to have conversations and conversations in a way that are respectful, but also has some knowledge as well too, right? Never making assumptions, but saying, okay, right? When you study world religions, what you find is other religions tend to portray their deities in ways that are very glorious and magnificent, as Christ followers, we look at Jesus and we go, well, you know what, Jesus? Um, not a lot of fanfare, a lot of, pomp, a lot of pomp and circumstance around your life. You know, like, could you maybe perhaps, like, you know, jazz it up a little bit? You know, because it, it seems as if you, get, you let people spit on you a lot or, or, or reject you a lot. Well, if you just would do this one thing, you could just transform their lives. And so, however we understand Christianity, Jesus himself is humility personified. Look at something here. 
The gospel of John has been called the gospel of the suffering servant because John's gospel, for some reason, John understood clearer than most of the other disciples that Jesus came to suffer. And so John highlights this in his teaching. That's why John's gospel is so different from the other three gospels because he really flushes this out. But time and time again, what does Jesus say about himself? Hey, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. Here's my card, right? He, he constantly says this phrase, for I, have not, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. It's like as if he was trying to help people understand something, that he was serving a greater purpose in the posture of a servant. And not only that, we can even get further into that, that whatever Jesus accomplished on this earth, we've talked about this, he did by the power of, his Holy, of the Holy Spirit, not his own divinity. Right? It's this idea he's, he really emptied himself of, of all that made him divine so that he could be an example for humans that was a true example of humans. And so Jesus, time and time again, says to his disciples, listen, I'm not here on my own accord. I'm not here to um, puff myself up. Instead, I'm here to show you the path towards reconciliation with Yahweh, with God the Father. Let me... Uh, Wrap up. By wrapping up, I still have three slides, so relax. Um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 to 39, he says this. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Now, just pause for a moment and meditate on that statement there. Let me break it down for you in a couple different parts. If you refuse. To refuse something is to have a choice. And the choice is simply, do I want more of God or not? Accept or reject. You are not worthy of being mine. Jesus says something very plainly. He says, listen, if you don't reject, if you don't just get rid of all the stuff in your life and lay it down before me, you are not worthy of being mine. And look at the word he uses there. If you cling, that word cling, right? It's like this idea of like, of us trying to hold on vainly to our lives because we think we're in control. We think we know what's going on. We think we know what God's plan is for life. We know what's going to the future is holding. It's this clinging, right? And it's like, Jesus is trying to help his followers to understand something. Your life, whatever it is, wherever it is, however you find yourself in, is incomplete without me. Jesus is saying, if you're my followers, you'll understand something. That when you become my disciple, I transform not just who you are, but how you view the world. So what does the process of humility look like? Because this is the part that really bugged me. And I have to confess to you, I rewrote this conclusion a dozen times. Because now I've been talking about humility. So I have to say to you, this is how you become humble. I don't know how to do that. But the answer lies in the description of a disciple. And this was the aha moment, I think at 2 o'clock in the morning. I think I freaked my wife out because I jumped out of bed. I have a little um, uh, notebook and I of bed, so I write down things that come to me. It's, it's really disruptive. But anyways, <laughs> who, who needs to sleep anyways? Um, but it's like, as I'm talking about disciple, I realize something. Embedded in this concept of disciple is the process of humility. Now watch this. I told you that a disciple is a worshiper. What is a worshiper? A worshiper focuses themselves on what they love. Now, do you know that you will not worship something if you think you're greater than it? 
Friday night, we had a worship service at Wellesley. And by the way, those of you who haven't joined us yet or haven't showed up yet, you are missing out. You're just, you're just, you're just flat out missing out. But we were, in a, we, were, we were in the room, and we're at Wellesley Community Church, and, and the team, of, as always, are doing just a magnificent job of leading us in the presence of God. But I realized something as I'm sitting there back there, you know, um, just like, like running the sound and just, just observing. When you worship God, you stand before the magnificence of the Creator. And if that doesn't overwhelm you, if that doesn't displace you from this high ledge of, of pride that you've created, I don't know what will. See, a worshiper is somebody who is humble because they know that what they are worshiping is greater than themselves. And that greater humbles us. And it empowers us, it strengthens us, it does all these things to us in a way that just, it just, it just, it messes us up. Look at the second part here. What we think is valuable, this is what we serve. If you were to show me your bank account statement, and I'm not asking you to, but if you were to show me your time for the week, like a calendar of the week, if you were to show me your, your Netflix queue, or uh, what you've watched in the last little bit there, I'm pretty sure I can find out what is valuable to you. And I don't mean to make that in a derogatory sense. I just simply mean to say that what we think is valuable, what we think is, is important, that's what we'll serve. Whether it's pleasure, whether it's people, whether it's status, whether it's a job, whether it's money, this is what we will serve. And the final part, of course, is witness. What we want to be known for. What do we want to be known for? Do we want to be known as a, as a great student, a great business person, a great leader, a great mom, dad, uh, whatever it would be, whatever label you want to use? Or would it be said about us that the thing that we're known for most is our, just our passion for Jesus? That, that we, just, we just want Jesus. And I just realized that if we flow, if we move in these three functions, we'll be humbled. I can't tell you what to do to make you humble because whatever I tell you what to do is just going to be another thing to do. But as you draw closer to Jesus, as you draw closer to his presence, you cannot help but fall to your knees and realize something. That the person that you are serving, the person that you are, are focusing towards is greater than you. Is worthy of all that you have and more. This is the last line. Paul, when he was trying to describe Jesus to a bunch of Gentiles, the church in Philippi was, was, was predominantly Gentiles. And a lot of ex-Roman soldiers retired in Philippi. And so when Paul wrote the letter Philippians, he's trying to describe them who Jesus was. Now look at this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others, but be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So what, what is he saying here? Other focus, servanthood focus, is what humbles us. Now look at this in verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Remember, he's talking to Roman soldiers who have been part of the Roman Empire for decades. They've retired. They've seen conquest after conquest. And he's saying to them, listen, by the way, those of you who used to order other soldiers around, those of you who used to, you know, boss the people around, start thinking of other people as more valuable than you. 
because that's the attitude that Jesus had. And look at verse 7. He, Jesus, gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. This is humility. And before we jump into the series about spiritual disciplines and integrate them in your lives, I promise you, I'm not going to give you a to-do list. I'm not going to do that anymore. Because you don't have any space on your to-do list anyways. What I'm going to try to help you to understand is we need to create space for God. Sacred spaces in the midst of our urban, midst of our busy lives, we have to create these spaces. And for some of you, yes, you have to take things off your list. But for others of us, it's just this realization that we have fallen asleep in our faith. We are spiritual zombies and we don't even know it. That we just need to awaken. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, right? You know, awaken, O sleeper. Let the light of Christ shine upon you. Right? This is what the series is going to be about. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you practical ways, of course, because that's my heart. But it's about this idea of saying, God, I want more of you. But I can't have more of you if I don't give more of myself to you. And what does that look like? Let's bow our heads and pray. The worship team is going to come back now. As we've done now, we've kind of reordered the service because we realized that we wanted to give you more time to reflect. And this is absolutely um, appropriate, especially with a series, is that I want to give you time to reflect, to think, to meditate, to ponder. I've just dropped a pretty heavy sermon on you. I know that. The question you have to ask yourself is, do you have a posture of a disciple or something else? Are you teachable? Are you willing to learn? Are you willing to grow? Are you willing to move forward in your faith? Julia, a few weeks back, said something, and I don't know if she realized this, but it really, it hit my heart pretty hard. She said, Whatever you give to God, he gives back to you. And that's really what we're talking about here. We want to give God more of our lives in every aspect. And not just the good stuff, because that's so easy. But the filthy stuff, the the shameful stuff, the guilt-ridden stuff, we want to give that to God as well. We want to offer both of these things to God and say, Lord, change me, transform me. So as the worship team leads us, we have a couple things we're going to do. We're going to take up offering, of course, as an act of worship. We're also celebrating communion this morning as well. And so take this time as we sing to reflect, to ponder, just to do whatever you need to do. But just give God the, your attention so that he can speak to you. And then we'll go from there.